0: Well this morning we have uh, the great task of looking at Mark number three, which is the gospel. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it is really a, a broad subject, and so broad in fact that just going to one passage is not going to do it justice. And for our purposes this morning, I really wanted to, to get more of a broad swoop of what the gospel is and really try and discover what that gospel is. Um, But I wanted to begin this morning by just sharing a little bit of a story with you. It was 2005, I believe, and um, I was going with the church staff to the Shepherds Conference, which is down in the northern part of LA. Um, It was being held at John MacArthur's church, and um, one of my friends from Michigan by the name of Randy Bachman, he flew out to the Bay Area, and he was going to ride with us down to... Uh, the Shepherd's Conference. And I told him, I said, just come. We've got a, we've got a church van. We'll all ride together. It'll be fun. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll be able to spend some time together. So he comes and uh, we all get together. and We're heading down to the Shepherd's Conference together. We're on I-5 and we're talking theology. We're talking about the various churches. And he happens to pastor the church that I used to pastor in Michigan before I came out here to California. And we're you know, just deep personal friends. It was a great time. We were just having a good time together. We're in this 15-passenger van. I wasn't driving. One of the other staff members was driving. And Randy and I were in that, that seat right behind uh, the driver and the passenger seat. So we're in that bench there. And we're just talking away and enjoying it. And then, then we noticed that behind us was a police car. And we were like, wow, you know, what's going on? The person was driving, was like, you know, a little worried. But they were like, you know, I'm going the speed limit. What's going on? Then all of a sudden, they pull up beside us. And we're still down on, on the freeway. And the, the police officer just just kind of looks real, real quickly and then pulls back behind us again, puts the lights on. Pulls us over. And we're all like, you know, what's going on here? What are they, you know, what, what man, I wonder what the driver did this time. You know, did he, is there a, a light out or something like that? police officer gets out. It was, a, it was a lady. And she comes up to the side of the van. And she opens the door and she looks at me and Randy who are sitting next to each other and she says why aren't you wearing your seat belts? And we were like yeah, um, I don't know officer. <laughs> and um, so we ended up getting tickets for (laughs) not wearing seatbelts, and of course, I said to Randy, welcome to California, you know, this is, it was the most expensive side trip that he made, you know, we're trying to do this to help save money and spend time together, but you have to understand, I came from Michigan, he came from Michigan, and in Michigan, at least when we were there, when I was there, if you were a passenger in a 15-passenger van, you were not required to wear a seatbelt. And I haven't been in a 15-passenger van since I had been in Michigan, so I'm getting in here and we're both just enjoying life like we've always known it and having a good time and not even knowing that the law of the land in California is you have to wear a seatbelt. Okay? Um, I want to use that analogy just to kind of maybe bring us into the place of what we're doing here this morning. I really wonder whether or not um, many times in... In the context of American Christianity, uh, people are driving down the freeway in a van, so to speak, not wearing their seatbelts, thinking everything is fine as it relates to the gospel. This is what they've known. This is how they grew up. This is just what it's always been in the church. And someone comes along and says, you're supposed to be wearing your seatbelt. Now, what do you think my flesh was saying when that police officer said, you're not wearing your seatbelt, why aren't you wearing your seatbelt? I'm thinking to myself, don't you have better things to do than pick up, hey, we're pastors here, you know, we're good guys, right? We're heading down to a conference, you know, I mean, you're thinking all of those things. And it's very, very possible when we come to the subject of the gospel, just to kind of get settled back into, oh, we, we know this, we've always known this, this is what we've grown up with, this is what's been part of the church, and might even get a little upset and angry at the messenger for pointing out some clarification as it relates to the gospel. So I would ask that this morning, as we move forward in this subject, that, that you, you really just allow the word of God to be the basis for your understanding of what the gospel is. All right? I'm not going to be teaching you anything that is unorthodox, that is not part of our historical tradition. I'm going to be teaching you what what uh, Christians have believed for years but it may be a little different than what you have grown up with or what you have embraced because maybe because we hear the gospel so much at least the word gospel we hear it in different contexts oftentimes we think of the gospel as those few little points that are thrown at the end of a sermon you know um, just my, the, the the little bits of facts about you know Christ's End of his life and what happened there on the cross, and those are important and and we may not have a, a full picture of it now we have you know just three hours today for us to go through this right, um, and we 're going to squeeze that into you know fifty minutes or so and 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 the gospel is is such a huge subject that um, just one passage of scripture is not going to do justice for us today so Bear with me we 're doing something that i don 't typically like to do, and that is not preach on one passage but kind of go through thematically. Um, but I hope that this will be a help to you and that uh, you will be encouraged by it so let 's just join together in a word of prayer and ask God to give us strength and wisdom here, Lord, you are truly a great God, and Lord, we want to learn more about this subject and lord this this important subject of the gospel, Lord. It is the means by which we have come to know you as our Lord and Savior. It is the means by which we have been brought into your family. It is the reason why this church even exists and why these people are gathered together. So, Lord, would you freshen us today um, anew with the gospel? so that we can, Lord, once again rejoice over what you have done for us and, Lord, how it has all taken place and how we fit into that and, Lord, the implications of that on what we do and how we do ministry and how our church is, is going to interact uh, with, with itself, Lord. So we ask for wisdom, for strength, for humility, and, uh, Lord, for, for you to accomplish what you desire in us. In your precious name, amen. Now I'd like for you to go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. You all know this, I am sure. Um, Romans 1, 16. Paul says, the beginning of this book, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that would be in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And let's just start at the beginning here of uh, these two verses. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And one of the things that, that, that I kind of bristle at when I read that is it, it's a negative, right? He's putting something in a negative. It's kind of like, you know, if I take my wife out on a date and I say to someone who's walking by, I say, you know, I'm not ashamed of my wife. <laughs> It's really, really romantic. It's really—I mean—it's just a nice thing to do, right? Um, and, but the, the re, he's saying it because there's there's stuff going on. Uh, I'm sure that, that he's addressing, and I, I think it's helpful for us, maybe not to you know to think about walking around with t-shirts that say "I'm not ashamed," because that's kind of in your face and obnoxious and whatnot. You understand what I'm saying? I think the way to to turn it around is to say, "I am proud of the gospel. I boast in the gospel." Now. Paul says those things, doesn't he? Okay? So, I'm proud of it. I'm thankful for it. I rejoice in the gospel. And it's not just that I'm not ashamed. I'm not saying it's wrong for him to say that. Obviously, he said it, and God has it in his word. He has it in a number of passages. But we can kind of have this defensive kind of a a harsh tone If we just say, I'm not ashamed, I'm not ashamed. And he really is proud of it. And the whole book is an expose of the gospel. Okay, So he's really writing here uh, in in an argument fashion. Now, uh, I want us to think through a little bit about what the gospel is. And I've just kind of come up with an analogy as we think through this. Let me give you the main points quickly of of this handout so you can see where we're going. First of all, we're going to talk about the flow of of the gospel, the flow of the gospel. I've never heard that before, Um, I know, um, meaning you've probably never heard it put in those terms, but there's a reason for that. There's, There's something going on through the pages of the word of God. Last week, we looked at the importance of biblical theology, right? And what we're going to be doing this morning as we look at the flow is we're going to be taking our biblical theology, working it through the Bible, and seeing the flow and development of the gospel to get us to the next point, and that would be the facts of the gospel. And with the facts, we're talking about what we would typically think about when we think about what happened on the cross and the transaction that took place. And then um, at the end... I'll spend just a little bit of time talking about the fruit of the gospel. I say a little bit of time because next week we'll be looking at the subject of conversion, which really all ties in with this. Um, So we want to look at the flow, the facts, and then the fruit. But maybe just to kind of step back and give an analogy, not a perfect analogy, but maybe an analogy that would be helpful here. I want you to imagine that that, um, the gospel is like is like an airport, okay? Now it's not like an airport. You understand that, right? But for our purposes, it's like an airport. And there are all these planes that are flying into the airport. All right? All these planes would represent things like the themes that we have in the Old Testament that are finding their their ultimate fulfillment in that, that one transaction on the cross with Jesus Christ hanging there you have the themes of, of God's righteousness you have the theme of his, his sovereignty and, and his redemption and, and uh, you know, the, the suffering and the ser- service all, that, all these things are, are just themes throughout the, the Old Testament that are working their way through the story God's story of redemption that find their, their focal point at the cross you with me there? So when I'm talking about flow, I'm talking about the movement of all these things through God's word to that point. All right, so then when, when we get to the airport then, we're dealing then with what happens when you get to the airport. Now, if you're flying internationally, what happens? You've got to go through customs, right? You can't get through unless you meet certain requirements. All right, and there are certain requirements, obviously, that the gospel... Has And you say, requirements? Isn't it a free gift? Well, yeah, it is a free gift, but there are requirements in understanding what the free gift is all about and how that free gift is given, all right? Then, you know, people usually don't go on vacation and say, well, I'm going to fly to the airport. And they get through customs and say, we're just going to stay at the airport. They want to go somewhere, right? And, and uh, you know, so what do they do? Well, they go get their bags... A baggage claim, and what maybe we don't realize is that when we, when we fly into the airport of the gospel and we get through customs and we stand at the baggage claim, um, we have just tons and tons and tons of bags. God has gifted us immeasurably with, with resources. And not only that, we get our own personal tour guide in the person of the Holy Spirit who says, you know what, on this day, use this bag. For this situation, put on those clothes. And the analogy goes on. You see what we're talking about? And we leave the airport with all the resources God has given us, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You might even say with, with God's revelation to us. Oh, it's a little corny to say, you know, you've got your, your map guide and everything. But you get the point, right? And, and so here's this, this picture. There's this flow that's happening. There's this transaction that takes place. And then the gospel is not just about what happens at the airport. It's also about what is continuing to happen. All right? And so usually when we think about the gospel, we're thinking about those events that took place right there at the cross. Isn't that true? If you say, well, tell me about the gospel. Well, Jesus died and, you know, okay, yeah. But there's, there's, a, there's a broadness to what's going on here. So let's step back a little bit, first of all, and let's look at the flow of the gospel. The word, um, the word gospel is the word um, good news, right? Right? It's from the Greek word euangelion, and um, it means good news. Now, Christians weren't the first ones to use the word gospel. In fact, the word gospel was used um, throughout the pagan world, um, and it primarily had to do with um, the announcement of some kind of important informational truth. Okay, um, Actually, you might want to think of that as, as a newsflash here's what's going on, newsflash, okay? And typically, though, although it was used for some mundane things, it was typically used to, to give an announcement, some news about an emperor um, either dying um, or ascending to the throne or maybe a great victory or a great defeat. It was news that spread throughout the land really quickly but typically, it was related to that emperor, and the, you could go through history, and you could find numerous examples of that um, being true. So in the, in you might want to say the, the pagan world, it was typically understood that euangelion, this good news, was tied to what was going on with the emperor, what was going on with that king. That's how it became, it came to be used. It was used sometimes in other contexts, but Usually those two things would go together, right? So that's the gospel, I might want to say, according to the, uh, to the pagans. But how did the Jews view the gospel? Well, let's just think through this a little bit. The Jews borrowed the same idea. They spoke in the same way, talking about euangelion, or the good news, to describe the announcement of important events. In fact, um, in 2 Samuel 18... You may know the story, but the, David's armies go out and two reporters come back from the battlefield saying, hey, we won this great victory. It just happens that it was against one of his sons. And just, there's, this, there's this battle that takes place, but they've won. And so they're coming back. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word euangelion is used. It's good news. I'm bringing you news, news of victory. Okay. So even in the context, the Jewish context, it was understood to be good news. I want to say, yes, an, an important thing having to do with a king, but um, it still wasn't quite what we might think Evangelion should be. So the word was used in a similar way to that of the pagans, an important announcement having to do with an emperor or the king, but the Jews elevated the word a little bit more. Uh, to address theological themes that they understood that would be taking place. And this is where we get to Isaiah chapter 40. And it says in Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 9, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the the cities of Judah, Behold, your God... (laughs) This is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Good news, good news. Why? Because there is coming a king. He's your God, but he's your king. Good news, king. Good news, ruler. Okay? Same idea, same concept. Let me go to Isaiah chapter 52, and verse 7. That should be right there in your handout. Again, think about what is being said there. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And Zion there, of course, is Jerusalem, who says to Jerusalem, your God reigns. Here's the good news, here's the God who reigns. Literally, the, God, the, the king who kings is what it literally means. So we have this idea of, of, of this good news, evangelion. Connected to the idea of a king, but in the Jewish economy, the king is now God. It's not just David or the physical king; it's also the supreme ruler. All right, that they're understanding. Okay. So, to the Jews, the gospel is the good news of a coming great king. Isaiah's gospel, in particular, is looking forward to a day when, uh, when it will be plain to everyone that Israel's God is king. And that this God, who is king, reigns. And so to the Jews, it meant a news flash that the gospel would, would be the coming of a Jewish king to rule the world. Okay? So, good news, king. But in the Jewish economy, good news, Jewish king who would rule the world. And even talking about God, their king, overseeing the world. Okay? Now, this is same word gospel that we translate gospel, good news, being used. So we see the flow here that's taking place. Now, let's move ahead to Jesus. How does Jesus view the gospel? You say, "Well, wait a second. I mean, Jesus is the gospel, right? But my point here is when Jesus, what we have records of as far as Jesus proclaiming the gospel, what is it that he proclaimed? And actually, he, he builds on what the Jews understood to be the good news. He inherited that Jewish idea of the gospel. The announcement that God had begun to reign as king over the world. Now, let's just stop here for a second. Um, one of the things D.A. Carson said, and I think it was very, very helpful, he just said, you know, God is sovereign, so he rules, right? So his kingdom is everything. But there is a subset of his kingdom, And that's what we typically understood to be the kingdom. It's not everything, but it's a subset that that you want to get into, that you want to be a part of. And so with that understanding, listen to what Matthew has to say. Turn to chapter 24, verse 14 of Matthew. And just so you know, I I, I don't have all the verses up on the screen at all because we have so many of them and it would have just been boom, 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 boom. It would have been hard. And some of you can listen to, some I'll have you turn to. But in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, I want you to see here how Jesus then uses gospel. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the what? Of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's his gospel. All right? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that the end will come. All right? Now turn to Mark. In Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, in verse 14 and 15. We'll, we'll actually go back to this verse a couple of times. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, repent and believe what gospel? That I'm dying on the cross for your sins? That's not the gospel he was presenting at that point in time, is it? The gospel is that there's a kingdom. And there's a God who reigns in that kingdom. And how you get into that kingdom is how? Repentance and believing. This is the gospel that Jesus was bringing. Luke's gospel... Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 and 19, Luke now borrows from Isaiah. And it's not that Luke is borrowing from Isaiah, it's really Jesus is quoting Isaiah about himself. But Luke records it for us. Luke chapter 4 and verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to proclaim what? What? Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, so here Jesus is borrowing from Isaiah's thinking about what the gospel is. He hasn't mentioned the cross yet. He hasn't mentioned the fact that he's suffering, although in the gospels he, is, he does talk about that, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a bit. But the gospel that Jesus was preaching was a gospel of the kingdom and the kingdom that was coming, and that that there was a king that was going to reign in that kingdom. Okay? So, let's look at a couple of other passages there in the gospels. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew 4, verse 23. Talking about Jesus now, and he went, this is a summary statement, there's a couple of them in Matthew. It says, and he went throughout all Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of what? The kingdom again and healing every disease and every affliction. Again, these are summary statements of Jesus' ministry while he was on the earth, while he was going out to the multitudes, while he was going into cities, he was healing, he was casting out demons, and he was preaching a message that we call good news, the gospel, but it was the gospel of the kingdom. Okay? So from this point on, Get this, the gospel is the announcement of the arrival of God's kingdom in the events of the coming of Jesus, his deeds, his teaching, and his sacrifice. So there's this kingdom, Old Testament concept, the Jews brought it from the pagan world in Using the word properly, understood it. There is this gospel, there's this good news when it comes to Jesus and his ministry on the earth. Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But that gospel of the kingdom, might want to say, is broader than simply those few days around the cross. The kingdom doesn't end then. The kingdom is broader and, and encompasses what took place on the cross. You with me there? So we talk about the gospel, it's not just about the events that took place on the cross. It certainly includes them, and those are critical. Those are the focal point, but the gospel is a story. And it's a story that begins before the foundation of the world. But we begin to see its development and its unfolding in the Old Testament thinking and economy of what they're expecting, what they're looking for. Okay? So now let's look at the gospel um, according to the apostles, how the apostles viewed the gospel. Let's go, we'll stay in the gospels for a bit. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark's writing, and he thinks, how should I start this letter? Or this book or this gospel? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is Mark saying? Is Mark saying that the gospel is simply the story of the Passion Week? Is that what he's saying? What does he mean by the gospel? What does he mean by the good news? Alright, that Jesus is the Son of God. But what does he do to prove and to show the gospel and that Jesus is the Son of God? He records all the events that Jesus was doing that he thought was pertinent to help Expose that Jesus is the answer to man's particular need. The gospel is basically, according to Mark, the events of Jesus, the life of Jesus, his ministry on this earth. Are you with me there? Okay. Um, Essentially, he right from the start he he quotes Isaiah forty verse three. Boom, connects it back there to Isaiah's understanding of this gospel. All right, so. This is the logic behind why we call the Gospels what? The Gospels. The Gospels basically were four books written by four men. All right, obviously, yes, inspired by God, breathed out by God through the, the personalities of four men that wrote it down. But these Gospels were actually literally kept in book form and went to various churches, went to various believers, and they would read the account of the life of Jesus. It was the good news of who Jesus is, his life and his ministry, and what he accomplished. But it's a narrative, it's a story. And isn't it interesting that in Mark's gospel, and not Mark's, in Matthew's gospel in particular, we have um, you know, the arrival of Jesus, but we also have what's called the kingdom parables. We also have the Sermon on the Mount and all of that. And those are simply descriptions of what someone who is in the kingdom, what they look like as far as how they should live, and how they should think, and how they should believe. It all fits in the story of Jesus saying, here's this kingdom. And there's a king that's coming to rule in this kingdom. And how you get in is repentance and faith. Okay? And it ends up in those Gospels and we see the events that took place on the cross. Now, let's go to the book of Acts. So the apostles would be those who wrote the Gospels, also um, the writer of Acts, which is Luke. quick read of the book of Acts will reveal that the apostles took time to tell the story of the life of Jesus, but also teased out significant facts and evidences for their listeners to consider. Turn, if you would, please, now, Uh, to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And we are going to we're going to look here at quite a few verses. But I want you to see how all we've talked about right now is beginning now to to be gelled together, kind of move together. Okay? Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by your own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now let me just ask you this. Are they telling a story? But do you see how in telling the story here, he's also inserting who Jesus is. He identifies him. He gives him theological weight. Right? How does he identify him? He is the holy and righteous one. He's the one that was raised from the dead. He's the one that you put your faith in. Okay, so it's not just telling the story now; they're showing the theological implications now of what's taking place. Continue. Um, All right. Says and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets—that is, Christ would suffer—he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, is the message here that Peter is giving more fine-tuned? Is is the data there, um, I might want to say, um, more specific than even what Jesus was giving? Absolutely. See, here's the flow of this good news. And this flow of good news we're seeing is beginning to take shape now in, might want to say, more theological terms, more factual terms as we get into the book of Acts. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Ah! Going back to the Old Testament, saying, ah, uh-huh, this is what God was talking about all along anyway. And what was he talking about back then? The kingdom. Okay? So this is all part of what's taking place in the kingdom. This is what, what you need to embrace to, in, in order to get into the kingdom. In more specific ways. Uh, fashion, okay? And that's just one of the messages from the book of Acts. If you read the other ones, you'll find the same stuff going on, little different nuances, a little different approach based on where they are, but you'll find the story and you'll find these theological implications, theological implications laid out, right? Then we get to the epistles. And of course here, um, not not yet to there, all right, where are the epistles here? And that's 1 Corinthians 15. We read that earlier. Um, and uh, I mean, this is, this is, Key section of Scripture, all right? as it relates to the gospel, but you might want to say as it relates to the facts of the transaction that took place, so that we understood understand what actually was accomplished, what was done on the cross on our behalf. You with me there? First Corinthians chapter fifteen um, and uh, beginning at verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, he's speaking to the brother, to to believers here, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, that means that is the basis now of their relationship with God, and by which you are being saved. So you're still in this process. The gospel is still at work. You are still within this process, this flow of the gospel, because it's not going to be complete, ultimately, until you're in God's presence. And even then, you're still living with the benefits of it, right? All right? Then he goes specifically talking about what it is. For I deliver to you, as a first of horns. What I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and on and on and on. All right. Now, these are the proofs. These are these. This is the data now that really gives weight to what the gospel might want to say. The gospel fruition, the transaction that was needed to take place. This is this is the data that we're we're given here, and then of course the resurrection, the rest of that chapter. So, I, I say all that to say this: all right, here's this flow. The gospel is not just throwing out doctrinal truths. It's not just throwing out doctrinal truths. The gospel is more than just throwing out doctrinal truths. Right? The gospel is not just the narrative story of the events. You know, Jesus came to the earth, he was on this earth, he taught, he healed people, he cast out demons, and isn't he a great guy? I mean, that's where you can go if you just look at the narrative. right, The gospel is the doctrinal truths that flow out of the narrative and represent the flow, the biblical theology of the whole Bible. So when you say, what is the gospel? Well, yeah, it it, it finds its focal point in the gospels, and it's fleshed out more specifically theologically in the epistles, but that's not the only place it exists. That's not where it began. It began before creation, but it's teased out in the Old Testament. All these themes now arriving at the airport. And they're landing so that when when the gospel is, is there to be understood and Jesus is hanging on the cross all of these themes are now finding their landing strip basically in Jesus it's just all flowing right to him in this transaction that takes place on his shoulders on the cross okay so that's the flow of the gospel you with me there okay uh, and I just I want us to see that because sometimes we can just get so focused on the on the data of the transaction And I tell you what, as we share the gospel with other people, sharing the story and sharing the flow, this is not something new. It's good news that has been around for a long time and has found its its greater, I might want to say, manifestation in the gospels and then clearly explained in the in the epistles. All right? Now, let's let's kind of circle back and let's look at the facts of the gospel, the facts of the gospel, and there's just four words I want you to focus in on here. There are a number of different ways that people have sought to describe the gospel, to explain the gospel. Um, I think this is helpful. This does come right from your reading, if you read the book and, and uh, uh, you know the, the section on the gospel. Um, and yet, I think this is a very, very helpful way of, of looking at the gospel and understanding it. First of all, the facts about God. What do we know about God? Well, there's a lot of things we know about God. God is the creator. He created the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the valleys, the animals and fish, birds and reptiles, the rest of the universe, the moon, the stars, the planets, galaxies. And he did that all out of nothing, right? He didn't create that out of something that already existed. He spoke it into being, okay? The heavens declare the glory of God, The sky above proclaims his handiwork. In fact, in the book of Romans 1, it talks about, in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So his creation um, is clearly revealed for us in the pages of, of God's word. But his creation crescendoed to a focal point when he created man. And um, we read there in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of heaven. But anything that man was given, God was, was delegating authority to. Man was not independently autonomous. God was always delegating authority. Now, there's lots of opinions as to the creation of the world. But one thing you can be sure of is that nowhere in scripture will you find that we are the result of um, random choice, some genetic mutations, anything like that. God created um, us in his image. Scripture is very, very clear about. We're all the result of an idea of a plan that began in the heart of God. Okay? You are not a mistake. You are not just some, some freak that happened to show up. You are the result of God's purposeful creation. Okay? Now, that being true,
1: God created us. We're not autonomous. Right? But the clay doesn't tell the potter what to do. The potter tells the clay what to do. Right? You like there? created us, he made us, he owns us, and because he created us, he has the right to tell us what to do and how to do it. Listen, God is a good God. When we see that screaming from the pages of his word, his attributes are attributes that we cannot compare with. He's holy, He's pure, He's just, He's righteous. All those things, we know that He's going to deal with His creation in a way that is good and consistent, right? So not only is it God that creates, He's also a God who is holy and righteous. And if you were to just ask an average person to describe God, and right, say, to average believer, describe God, likely what they would to do is this. Turn to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6 great passage of scripture. Just a wonderful way that God has revealed himself in the pages of his word as he's interacting here with uh, with Moses. Here's how the Lord describes himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow anger." And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. Isn't, isn't he just an awesome God? Look at me, look at those attributes again. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. Boy, I'm so glad he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions and sin. We are selective in our reading, because you have to read on here. But who will by no means clear the guilty. <laughs> the guilty are not excused from their guilt. So this gracious, loving, and long-suffering God is consistent in His character. Because he cannot clear the guilty. Something has to take place in order for the guilty to be reconciled and restored to him. He's holy. He's righteous. He cannot do that. He cannot go against his character. He is pure. So the fact that God is is holy and righteous means his character will not allow him to be one-sided to sweep sin under the rug, to simply ignore our rebellion. He must deal with it. So He's a creator. He's also perfect in His holiness and his, his righteousness. Okay? Now, in fact, it's about man. And there's a lot more we can say about God, but it's enough to say He is creator. He is the authority. We, as His creation, submit to Him. And the reality is, and we'll find that here, um, Man is sinner, his enemy, he's a rebel. Adam and Eve were created, they were given uh, the realm of the garden, but they were told there's one tree, and the fruit of that tree you shall not eat. You're not allowed to eat. God gave them specific instructions. They knew that they were to not eat that fruit, and they could have anything else, right? Now, just, I mean, just simple parenting instructions there, right? Sometimes you tell your kids, don't do this. What happens? Now they want to do it, right? Um, and this is where self-control comes in. Here, they knew exactly what they were doing. Get this. It wasn't like this was some suggestion. Or this was some kind of a small thing. In, in, in the garden, It was like, you know, it's a like handicap only, you park in the handicap, all right? We're not talking about some kind of a small kind of thing. We're talking about something that God said, listen, you can do you can have anything and everything except for this. And if you do this, you have broken fellowship with me. But get this, they made a conscious decision to reject God as their king. They knew with their that their consciences um, were in their consciences that they would be rejected by him, but they didn't care. They were willing to trade their faith with God for the pursuit of their own pleasures and their own glory. Every time we sin, that is exactly what we're doing saying, God, I don't want your favor. I want my own satisfaction. I want what I want. This is what the Bible calls him, disobeying God, and his commandments in word, thought, or deed. Okay? So they were rebelling against God. They were saying, no to God. I want to do my own thing. Sin, of course, literally means missing the mark. Now, in our current therapeutic age, missing the mark to many people, it's like there's a target out there and we're shooting this arrow and it somehow just kind of, just 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 barely missed the target right, it's kind of like me when I you know, shoot an arrow, I'm never going to hit the target right I just barely miss the whole time right, no, no 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 no, what's happening is the target's over there, but because we are sinners and because we're rebelling against God we're actually shooting over here it's not just the arrow we just missed, no we're going 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So the sin isn't just a description of what you do, it's also a description of who you are at your core. This is true of all of us. Ephesians 2 in verse 3 says this. By nature we are children of what? If you read through Romans 1, you would see, beginning at verse 18 or so, God's authority established, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who either under righteousness suppress the truth. And throughout that passage you'll see God and his authority establishing his authority, but the wrath is being poured out. Why? Because people have rebelled against him. So the authority is implied by virtue of his action and by virtue of his wrath. And it says that God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And it's really, really interesting. If you want to look at the end there, but he says, in verse 32, Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a brazen, shaking your fist at God. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That is a picture of us. And don't think it's not a picture of you. It is. This is every man. So uh, I'm, I'm good. I do good things. And I know you do, but he's talking here not about your actions. He's also talking about who you are, trick for. Who you are. You are, by nature, children of wrath. Okay? Now, get this. Isaiah. Uh, no, let's, let's, let's move on. That's, that's the, facts, the facts about. Center. He's in rebellion against God. So God is over here. Creator. Righteous and holy. Man is completely the opposite side. because he has got son. it was a temporary appeasement a temporary we call it atonement a temporary satisfaction so that man can have fellowship with God and sacrifice provided that relationship. however as we move straight ahead to the New Testament we find um, based on the Old Testament there is a sacrifice here's what I've come to do. This is just one of them. This is kind of like the key verse in Mark's Gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And a ransom, of course, we know is what? It's a payment. His life, his sacrifice, was a payment for our sin. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, you want to jot that down. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Is describing all the stuff that took place when Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying as our substitute. First Peter chapter two and verse twenty-four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds who have been healed. So what Jesus did on that cross was make make a way possible for us to be reconciled back to God. Paul also tells us in verse 5.21, we read that to begin with here, for our sakes, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It's not that we are in rebellion and enemies over here, and we don't sin anymore. It's the fact that Jesus Christ, because of His death on the cross, has, has, has made a way so that man can be reconciled to God. Alright? someone wanted to join us today, apparently. Okay. All right. So let's look down on our response. I have no idea. All right. Our response, repentance and faith, and our, our time is running out here, so I want to just kind of move through here. There is a response. I do believe wholeheartedly because of God's sovereignty because of who he is, that he is in the process of drawing people to himself. But the way that God. Is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. Okay? Repentance is the other side of the coin. If faith is turning totally and completely to Christ, repentance is turning totally away from sin. Okay? And then to Christ. So repentance is turning away from sin, hating it and resolving by God's strength to forsake it. Even as we turn to him in faith. So that's why as a child of God, if you are, you know, you truly have gone, you've gone through customs, okay? You now, you're now part of the citizenship. For you as a child of God, to look back into the Lord for the life and the sin that you had back then, is really contrary to who you are in your new nature. But well, we do that, don't we? <laughs> that's why he says put uh, to death... That's it. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're now a child of God. You've now entered a new kingdom a new citizenship. You don't have to be hindered by that. So the way we enter in is is by faith and repentance. I'm giving you the facts, basically. The facts are God, man, Christ as the solution. But we have to respond. How do we respond? Faith and repentance very simple way of understanding the, the gospel. Now, there's one more section where I just wrote do a brief, well, just kind of touch on it, and that would be the front of the gospel. Um, like I mentioned, this is like going now, you're going through customs, now you're going to baggage claim. And I, I, I'm just convinced that there are many people who have walked through customs that have no idea that they have baggage and they've left it and it's just circling around it's just circling around waiting to be picked up. And they have no idea that they to guide. In the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's just so much more we can say about this, right? Um, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us even when we were dead in our trans- trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You were dead, you are now alive. You are in the darkness, now you are in light. See, that's all that happens when you walk through customs! artifacts in particular of the gospel. That was the the focal point. And we, we look back and we rejoice. We're going to do that today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But understand the gospel is a story of all that unfolding. It is a story of all that transaction taking place. It is now You have orchestrated all of those things, but Lord. You have done all that because You have, before the creation of this world, desired to provide an answer for our uh, enemy status. Lord, and that is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, that we are so undeserving of being showered, Lord, by Your grace. Lord, we have been clothed, if we are your children, in the righteousness of who Jesus is, Lord, not our own righteousness. That we, we know that we are children of wrath. We know that even our good is insufficient for us so far, Lord. The only thing that we rest on is what you have done for us, Lord, that being applied to us, covering us, Lord, covering our sin. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. May we, as as your church, embrace these realities. May we grow in these realities. May we see them and work in and out of our work with you and how we are going to be a light in this greater community, Lord. Would you allow us to have a passion for the gospel, for it is the power of God. Lord, help us to be proud. Help us to boast in the gospel, Lord. Help us not to be ashamed of it. I want to live it, to embrace it, to hunger for it, and to glory in it. We ask in your name. Amen. So when Eli starts to sing, you're only going to sing with him. It's a new song, right? Okay. All right. All right, so let's uh, begin right here at the front, and we'll, we'll come up. Okay, so.